We at West Hills right now are in uh, the midst of a four-week Advent series leading up to Christmas, and uh, we're looking at Christ's birth essentially from four different perspectives. You know, with any event where there are eyewitnesses, you have different perspectives based upon where the person was at and their, the angle at which they were looking at a particular event, whether it's a traffic accident or, or anything, different witnesses have different perspectives. What we're trying to ask ourselves with these messages as we're looking at the birth of Christ through four different eyes and lives, if you will, is did, did each of them come to the same conclusion? Did they all come to the same conclusion about this child, this infant who was born? Uh, last week, Pastor Will did a great job uh, starting us off with, with these messages, looking at Mary as she pondered these things in her heart and treasured these things in her heart and what the takeaways are for us today. Today, we're going to look at that mysterious group of men who were on this great search. And then next week, the shepherds who were just absolutely shocked that they would be included in this cataclysmic event why, of all the people on the face of the earth, would God choose a motley group of shepherds out on a hillside? And then, in the last message, we'll look at the aging prophet Simeon. We're going to look at the birth of Jesus through the eyes of someone who had been waiting for so long for God to fulfill his promise to bring a Messiah. And so this morning, searching for answers as we look at the wise men, please stand as we read God's word. Reading from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The reading of God's word. Please be seated. Now, just to give you a little... Uh, <clears throat> Oh, I guess a living illustration or a dead illustration, whatever you want to call it. Marshall, under your chair is a little container with some frankincense and myrrh. And then over here, underneath that front chair, there's another container. If one of you could grab that. 
Just pass it around. You can look at it. You can smell it. It, it looks like granola. It is not. So <laughs> it is not edible. Do not eat it. But I'll just give you a little idea as to frankincense and myrrh were, were valuable spices. Uh, frankincense was used as an incense. Um, basically symbolic of the prayers going up to God. Uh, myrrh was actually used in the, the burial customs. Uh, a, a body would be, would be embalmed and wrapped, and one of the spices used was, or one of the, one of the materials used was myrrh. And so it just kind of gives you a little idea as to what we're talking about with the gifts. I did not include any gold. I didn't know if anybody had sticky fingers in here, but uh, decided to forego the gold. So who were these men anyway? Um, these mysterious men from the East. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about them. In fact, the Bible probably tells us less about the wise men than potentially any of the other characters in the birth narrative that we have. Um, first of all, what we don't know, we don't know their names. Uh, tradition has given them names, Melchior, Belthazar, and Caspar. Um, that they were later baptized, tradition says, by, by Thomas, and that you can actually see the bones, their bones in the great cathedral of Cologne if you were to visit there today. But we don't know any of that. That's merely tradition, so we don't know their names. Uh, we don't know exactly where they were from. It just says from the east. Tradition says that one came from India, one came from Greece, one came from Egypt. Uh, probably not, because it says they came from the east, um, uh, probably, definitely not, were they from the Orient. We three kings of Orient are, being the Far East, probably not. Uh, potentially, they were from modern-day Iraq, Iran, Syria, maybe India, as far away as India. But we do know that they had to cross all of that Middle Eastern desert to get to Palestine, and that it probably took, best guess, anywhere from six weeks to six months for them to make the trek. We also don't know how many there were. You know, tradition says three because of the gifts. Uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, obviously three men brought three gifts. Well, how many gifts do you have under your Christmas tree? 37, does that mean there were 37 people who brought gifts? No, uh, the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh may, may have been brought by a half dozen, a dozen. We just don't know how many men there were Plus, groups such as this often traveled in caravans. Um, I think the next, I think, is there, do we have a slide of the caravan? Yeah. It may have been something more like that, a long caravan with uh, those who were bringing along all the supplies. So there are a lot of things about them that we don't know. Now, what we do know is that they were magi or wise men and not kings, the Bible does not tell us that they were kings. And so a magi or a wise man was a combination astronomer, astrologer, scientist, philosopher, essentially. Uh, they served as royal advisors to a king. And so if a king had a major decision to make or needed to know uh, a dire the direction he should take uh, in, in making a decision, he would consult the wise men. He would consult the magi. Uh, in the book of Esther, those of you who are reading through the Bible, you were in Esther recently, a few weeks ago. The king of Persia consults with the Magi as to what to do with his wife who, was, who disrespected him. Uh, he called in the wise men. In Daniel 2, it was these type of men that Nebuchadnezzar called upon uh, to decipher his dreams. 
And so in this case, it's wise men from the, from the, from the eastern lands, the Middle East, who were led by the Lord. Understand, God didn't approve of astrology uh, for the purpose of predicting the future. In fact, he condemned astrology. He condemned looking to the stars to get direction. But a sovereign God can meet people where they're at and can use what they're doing in their lives at the time for his purposes. We also know that they were apparently quite wealthy. To make a trip of this, of this stature and this length and then to bring the gifts that they brought, these men were apparently pretty wealthy individuals. It says they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They would have brought along supplies, significant supplies to make a journey of that length. And so they probably had a lot of their own uh, wealth, unless they had a GoFundMe page. Um, it's always a possibility. Um, we know that they weren't present at the manger when Jesus was born. They weren't there. The shepherds were there, but not the Magi. It says in verses 1 and 2, after Jesus was born, wise men from the east came, saying, where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? And then when the star came to rest, it came to rest over a house. And they went into the house to see Joseph and Mary and the child. It doesn't say the infant or the baby. It says the child. So they didn't arrive at the same time as the shepherds. In fact, they may have arrived a fair amount of time after the shepherds, based upon what I just told you, and also the fact that Herod set out to eliminate the possibility of any possible child king having been born, and from what he ascertained from the wise men, he determined a two-year spread of time. And so someplace between birth and two years is what Herod was trying to eliminate the possibility of a king having been born and being living at the time, and thus he called for the slaughter of all of those male babies. Now, in giving you all of that, I'm not trying to wreck your mental image of Christmas. I'm not trying to get you to go home and take the nativity scene off the mantle and throw it in the trash. That's not it at all. But rather, we do want for the scriptures to give us a clearer picture of exactly what took place and who these people were. So what can we learn and take away from this piece of the Christmas story? Well, I think there are several things that I'd like for us to think about just for a few minutes. First of all, the most important thing we know about them is that they searched. They searched. They were on a mission. They were seeking they were looking for someone in particular. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. And so these guys were seeking, searching. They were on a mission. And it was a search that would probably impact their lives for the rest of their days. Um, it was a life-changing search. Now, friends, the Bible commends seeking and searching. God's word commends that. He says that we should be on a lifelong search for God. The most important search of all is your search for God. And not just initially, but for, for the rest of your days. You just keep seeking God, seeking to know him better, seeking to know him more. J.I. Packer writes these words in his great, great book, Knowing God. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. 
What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. For I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, Hosea 6. Packer concludes, what makes, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches your imagination and lays hold of your allegiance. This, is, this the Christian has in a way that no other man has. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? That's the search that the wise men were on. The people of Israel told in Deuteronomy 4, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so the scriptures commend us to a life of searching and seeking after God. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who seek after God. Are you one of those people are you someone who is spending your life seeking and searching for God? Is that, your, is that your number one goal in life? To be a wise man, a wise woman, who spends your days pursuing God. You know, as I think about the attitudes of various people today, I, I kind of put people into three categories. Skeptics, speculators, and seekers. Skeptics, speculators, and seekers. The skeptic doubts that anyone can actually know God. So why seek him if it's only going to be a futile search? Uh, speculators speculate about God. They, the speculators say, well, I think God is kind of like this, and my idea of God is this. I picture God being, and so they speculate. And just because I want or think something about God to be true does not make it true. See, speculators guess, they conjecture, and they come up with their own ideas of what God is like, if he exists at all. But friends, humble seekers are people who are led by God to diligently search for the truth about God, no matter the cost, no matter how much effort it takes. Did you know that you can be awfully close to the truth and miss it completely? I mean, think about this. The religious center of the world at that time was Jerusalem, six miles away from Jesus' birthplace. And all of the religious scholarship in the Middle East was centered in Jerusalem. And so all the priests, all the scribes are only six miles away. The distance of equivalent of going from here to Chesterfield Valley or from here to the St. Louis Zoo. But not one religious leader went six miles to search for Jesus. It took a group of men who were pagans from some foreign country who lived hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, traveling a distance equivalent to potentially going from St. Louis to Florida or St. Louis to California to carry out their search. 
See, God commends those kinds of people. God would commend you today to be a seeker and a searcher, to not waste your days seeking and searching after the wrong things. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Search for him. Find him. Our God is a knowable God. You can know him. He promises to draw you to himself if you seek after him. Secondly, we learn that they sacrificed. They searched and they sacrificed. There was major effort made by these men. This was no small undertaking. They expended considerable time and effort and resources to go on this, on this journey. When they left their homeland, they would not have known how long they would be gone. They weren't really sure what it would take. Um, there's reason to believe that they may have known that they might end up somewhere in Palestine. Possibly some of the wise men may have been exiles in Babylon at the time. And they would have been familiar with the prophecies of the coming Messiah, with Jerusalem being the capital of Judah. It would have made sense, potentially, to assume that they might head in that direction. But it took them a long time to get to where they were going. And so it was a sacrifice of time. It was a sacrifice of effort. It was a sacrifice of resources on their part. They sacrificed. You know, as a people and a culture... We tend to always be looking for the easiest and the fastest way to find something, don't we? You don't have to go and spend hours in the library. You can just do a Google search. You don't have to work hard at uh, losing weight, for example. Give us a week, we'll take off the weight, Slim Fast claims. You know, there are lots of examples in life where we are a culture that's always looking for the, the easiest and the shortest, the quickest way to get something accomplished. But seeking and knowing God isn't like that. True seekers make personal sacrifice in their search for God. They, they put time and they put effort into knowing God. It's not taken casually. A casual commitment results in a casual knowledge of God. Let me say that again. Casual commitment, casual seeking results in a casual knowledge of God. Becoming a follower of Jesus where you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul will bring with it a cost and some sacrifice on your part. That's what God would call you to in the coming year. Jesus said, count the cost. Count the cost. If you're going to be my disciple, count the cost. Someone who's building a, building a tower, someone who's building a skyscraper, counts the cost before they lay the first brick. Someone who's going into battle, a king going into battle with 10,000 soldiers, counts the cost before he goes into battle with a king with 20,000 soldiers. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, pull back and count the cost because I will be calling you to put effort into being a follower of mine. If you want to really, really know me, if you want to know me casually, then you will, that's what you will end up with. The wise men counted the cost before they ventured out on this journey. Thirdly, they stayed the course. They stayed the course. You know, it's not hard for me to imagine several points along the way with, with, with this group of guys 
where they could have gotten sidetracked, they could have gotten sidetracked with discouragement. How long is it going to take? How long is this star going to keep leading us? Where is it going to take us to? Um, they could have become discouraged by how long. I mean, they set out on this journey thinking it would, wouldn't take them terribly long, maybe a couple weeks, and then a week becomes a month. Uh, 10 miles becomes 200 miles, and it just keeps going. They had commitments back home, potentially. They, they needed to get back. They could have been dealing with the, the wacky wise men syndrome. They, everybody, everybody back home thinks we're nuts. They think we're crazy, following a star. You see, if you set your heart to seek after God, not just at the beginning of a relationship with Christ, but throughout your life, if you set your heart to seeking after God, if Christ becomes your all in all, you'll have people in your life who will think you're crazy. You've taken this thing way too far. It's okay to kind of love Jesus, but you're just, you're just really taking this awfully seriously. And then this whole episode with Herod could have gotten them sidetracked. My goodness. He was an aging, paranoid fruitcake, essentially. And when someone like that has lots of power, it can be extremely dangerous for everybody else. Well, that's the way it was with Herod. King Herod would have been about 70, year old, 70 years old at this point in time, um, at the time of Jesus' birth, probably in the last months of his life, scholars' research tells us. He had ruled the Jews from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't loved by the Jews. They despised him. He had never been accepted by the Jews as their legitimate ruler. <clears throat> and so he became extremely paranoid. He used deception and murder to turn aside anybody suspected of wanting to usurp his reign. Uh, he even murdered three of his own sons and several of his wives because he suspected them of plotting against him to take the throne out of his hands. And then here you have the slaughter of the innocents. How many male babies were killed? We don't have a number, but it would have been in the hundreds for sure. And then not long after, Josephus tells us, not long after the events recorded in Matthew 2, as, as Herod got closer to his own demise, he had a group of wealthy, influential men uh, in Jerusalem, incarcerated, and then ordered his guards so that at the moment of his death, this group of men were to be put to death so that the city of Jerusalem would be in mourning. But it wouldn't be for him. But that's how paranoid he was. I mean, this guy could have really used some counseling. Dr. Phil would have had a heyday with King Herod. And by the way, that attempt on his part was not carried out because his brother and sister stopped it from happening. And so it says in verse 3, Herod was troubled. And the word troubled means he was terrified. He began to shake. His terror was at the thought of someone else becoming king in his place, even if it was an infant. And thus, this diabolical plot to wipe out all of these babies. So yes, I think you can see that the wise men could have gotten sidetracked in their search for a king. Do we really want to search for a king when there is a king ruling who is this paranoid? And I guess at this point, I would just simply say, friends, if you're seeking after God, don't get sidetracked. 
Stay the course. Stay the course. The enemy will try to sidetrack you and discourage you and deter you and get you off route. You may have people in your lives, people in your life who, are, who will discourage you in your pursuit of God. Seek after God. Don't stop. Have a long-haul mentality in seeking God. Seek Him all the days of your life till your last breath. Now, with this group of men, I think what kept them on track was that supernatural star. It wasn't a normal star. I mean, some people think it was a comet or a supernova or an asteroid, but this star didn't act like any of those. It was custom-made, seemingly. The Bible says it led them from the east, and so they had been traveling west. Then... After their talk with Herod, the star reappeared and turned them south toward Jerusalem, toward Bethlehem. Then it settled right over the house where Mary and Joseph were living with Jesus. Now, I've never seen a star like that, have you? Plus, we don't have any indication from the Bible that anybody else ever saw the star the way the wise men did. It doesn't say that Herod saw the star. It doesn't say that the people in Jerusalem saw the star. The only people to our knowledge who saw it were the wise men. It was a special star. And that's what kept them from getting sidetracked. Now here's the great news. If you or someone you know is truly seeking after God, God is going to give them a star. God is going to put something into their life, something into your life. And if you are seeking right now, it's probably already there. It's probably already in your life. Maybe it's a person, someone who has come into your life or has been in your life for a long time, someone who knows Jesus, someone who knows, who knows all about what it means to have Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And they've been, they've been following Jesus, and they're in your life. And God's going to use them as a star to shine light on your path to shine light on your darkness. Maybe it's a book you're reading and God's going to use that book or a book that you give to a friend, a book that you give to someone who's seeking and searching. Books are wonderful tools. Maybe it's a song. Maybe you send someone a a CD of music over the holidays and there's a song in there that just grabs their heart and that's their star. For some, it's a crisis. They come into some major cataclysmic event in their life and God uses that to draw them to himself or a life transition a change a season of discontent see the fact is we all need stars we all need stars and the other side of the equation especially I say this to those of you here at West Hills you may be God's star for someone in 2019, for someone over the Advent season. You may be that person in someone's life, and you are in their life by God's providential design. And God will use you. God will use you to shine light for them, to point them in the right direction. He wants for your life and for your witness and for your love for Christ to lead somebody to Bethlehem. And then someone to the cross. And then lastly, the last thing I would 
the takeaway from, from the wise men, they stooped to worship. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, the wise men didn't know know everything about Jesus that we know today. We know a whole lot more about Jesus than they did. But they knew enough to be ecstatic over the one that they discovered. I love the way Matthew words it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Let's just pile those words on top of each other for emphasis. I mean, they didn't just rejoice. They didn't just rejoice with joy. They rejoiced with great joy, and beyond that, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, these were full-grown men who were overcome with emotion. They were overwhelmed with what had happened in their lives. I so hope that during this Advent season, you will find it within your soul to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. I guess I would say this especially to you Stoics. Give yourself permission. Give yourself freedom to rejoice exceedingly with great joy someplace over the next few weeks. Whether it's when you're all by yourself and nobody else is watching or you're driving in the car and you're listening to a great, you know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Boy, that song is probably the number one song for me that causes me to rejoice exceedingly with great joy because it is packed with gospel. You want to listen to songs that are packed with gospel truth and then allow your heart to resonate. Allow it to stir your soul. Talk to your soul. Talk to your soul. Give it permission to worship the Lord. And maybe it'll be when you're listening to Handel's Messiah or in the quiet of your living room, gazing at the lights on the Christmas tree, or in here on a Sunday morning with God's people as we sing the great hymns of the season. I just would simply invite you, exhort you, try it. Try rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And then it says, they rejoiced, and then what do they do? They stooped, they fell down to worship him. And they brought out their gifts, and they worshipped this newborn king. It probably would have looked pretty foolish to the people back home to see these grown men falling down on their knees and bringing out gifts for a baby, but that's okay. When you have found the truth and when you have found the Christ child, it is okay to look foolish in your worship of him. It's okay to do things that the world does not understand. And the world would not have understood why these grown men would have traveled this distance, found this child, and fallen down on their knees to worship a newborn child. So let me remind you from the word of God exactly who this child was that they were rejoicing. From God's word. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. Picture the newborn baby. Picture the child in in Joseph and Mary's home. Picture the wise men falling down and worshiping this child. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And lastly, Revelation chapter 1. I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice... His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What will you do with Christ? What are you doing with Christ? What will you do with him in the new year? What will you do with him over the next two weeks? Will you seek him? Will you set your heart to seek him? Will you sacrifice for him time, effort, resources to show that he truly is the Lord of your life, your your king, your king? Will you stay on course? Will you stay on course? Keep moving forward 
following Jesus? And then lastly, will you stoop to worship him? Everybody worships something. What are you worshiping these days? Will it be Jesus? Let's pray together. Would you please take a minute right now and uh, listen to whatever it is that God's Spirit is saying in your heart. The Holy Spirit's job is to put all the focus, all the limelight on Christ. The Spirit of God would prod you, push you to be a seeker. Seek God with all your heart, all your being. Seek the truth. Seek the Lord while he may be found. If you've never acknowledged Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the one who came into the world, the righteous one who came to die for those who are unrighteous, the perfect one who came to give his life for all who are so imperfect because of our sin. Would you give your life to Christ today? Acknowledge him. The Bible says to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right for you to become a child of God. Receive him today. Believe in him. Put your faith in Jesus. May this Advent season be the most remarkable Advent season, the most remarkable December month of your entire life. And for the rest of us who have potentially known Christ for years, would you set your heart to seek him even more, to worship him more, to sacrifice your life for him more, to not get sidetracked, Lord Jesus, we choose to worship you today. We bow our hearts before you. We would even bend our knees before you, knowing that every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Christ is King. There is no other King. And Father, I pray for any who are here who are in that journey of seeking and searching. I trust, Lord, that you've given them a star, or maybe several stars. Would you continue, Lord God, continue this great work of your mercy and your grace in their lives. That this could be the Christmas where they know Jesus We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your life, your birth, your incarnation, your ministry, your miracles, your words, your teachings. But we especially worship you for your death, dying, that we might have life. So now as we take the bread and the cup, we do so in remembrance of you, to honor you and to worship you. We give you thanks and praise. In Christ's name we pray.